Well, as we come to the Word of God, I encourage you, please bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Our Father, we come humbly and soberly before your Word, and we ask that you would please open our minds that we may understand, open our hearts that we may change, and Father, soften our wills that we might go out different people today. May your truth speak to us in a way that only you can enact. And we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after our hiatus last week, looking at uh, the Reformation, we return again to the Gospel of Luke. And today we're looking at a warning from hell. A warning from hell. This is the nature of expositional preaching is I don't choose my topics. In one sense, you could say the passage uh, chooses me. As I, we go through the book, the next passage is what we are presented with. And this week in Luke 16, we're presented with a passage on hell. The Bible is clear that hell is a real place. It's a place of eternal conscious torment for all those who do not turn from their sins and trust in Christ. It's spoken of as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of flame and of darkness, of torment and of pain that will not end. Jesus himself spoke of hell more than any other teacher in Scripture. And yet, there are many today who deny the existence of hell. Most famously, uh, the mega, mega church pastor Rob Bell wrote a book over a decade ago called Love Wins. In it, he states that hell is not a place of eternal torment, but it is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. He says it's both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who die unready for God's love. And he states that hell is not forever. This approach is not exclusive to him but is, has grown in popularity in our secular age as the message of the Bible seems to be too harsh, too judgmental. And so the existence of hell gets thrown out the window. In response to such positions, people like author Bill Weiss have tried to convince people of hell's reality. In 2006, he wrote a book in which he claims that one day in 1998, he had an out-of-body experience and he was taken to see hell. He wrote a book called 23 Minutes in Hell. He records what he saw, what he smelled, what he experienced in that out-of-body experience. He claims that demons tormented him and that he saw people burning in a pit of flame. His goal in sharing his story was that he desires to convince people of the reality of hell. He wants them to know what is, it is really like so that they would avoid that frightful horror. Now, I commend this author, Bill Weiss, for his evangelistic desire but I seriously doubt the authenticity of his experience, and I do not believe that his account is authoritative for understanding what hell is truly like. The reason for this is quite simple. The Bible is sufficient for understanding all things regarding heaven and hell. We don't need someone to visit hell to know that it's real. Of course, we don't need someone to visit heaven to know it's real either. We only need God's authoritative and sufficient word. In addition to this, as we'll see in our text, such phenomenological experiences do not convert people. They do not have the power to convince the unsaved mind of the realities beyond death. Our passage today is infinitely more authoritative about the realities of hell than anyone's supposed experience. And so if you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16 as we will look at a parable that Jesus tells here in Luke 16. This passage gives us a warning from hell itself. 
And it comes at the end of a chapter where Jesus has been teaching on money and riches. However, he's not just been saying, hey, you need to spend your money differently, although he does say that. But he says, the way that you spend your money reveals your ultimate allegiance. It reveals who you ultimately love, who you ultimately serve, who you ultimately are devoted to. The way you're looking at your bank and your pocketbook will reveal where and whom you worship. And Jesus wants us to see in this chapter that financial wealth can blind people to their spiritual poverty. Financial wealth can blind people to their spiritual poverty. And so let's see how Jesus continues this conversation in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. Follow along as I read 19 to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a, laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In this parable, Jesus wants to warn us. He wants to warn us about the reality of hell. And he does this so that we would repent before it's too late. We must see the reality of hell and turn from our sin before it's too late. In this passage, this warning comes in three parts I wanna draw your attention to this morning. The first part of his warning comes in uh, verses 19 through 23, and it's this, that earthly joys are temporary. Earthly joys are temporary. The first part of his warning is that earthly joys are temporary. Now, Jesus' warning here in this passage comes in the form of a parable. It isn't explicitly stated to be a parable, but it starts the same way that others' parables start. You'll, for example, if you let your eye glance to chapter, the, the first verse of this chapter, chapter 16, verse 1, it said, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and it goes on. And then here in verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. It starts exactly the same way as other parables do. Now some have argued that because one of the characters is named, namely Lazarus, that because there's a name here in this parable, that this isn't a parable, but actually a true account, like a, a, a story, uh, not just a story, but an actual a true historical account. And while it's true that naming of a character inside of a parable is unique, I don't think that it is, that detail is enough to argue that this is not a parable. It fits the form of his other parable teachings. Now, some have then said, well, because it's a parable, we can't really gain any true knowledge about hell or about heaven or about the afterlife at all. This is all just allegorical. This is all symbolic. It's a parable after all. Now, in believing that it's a parable, I still believe that there are 
plenty of truths that we can learn about the afterlife, that we can learn about what comes after death from this story. Jesus embeds it with much truth, and we cannot simply throw it all out, claiming that it's a parable. So it is both a parable and it reveals truth about the afterlife. I believe both can be true. Central to this parable, you'll notice in verse 19, is a rich man. He's unnamed. His riches are portrayed in his clothing and his, in his cuisine. He was clothed in purple, it says. You'll notice he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple cloth in ancient times came from a dye that was produced from snails. It was painstaking and it was expensive. And so therefore, if someone wore purple, it showed that they had the money to be able to buy such expensive clothing. This was worn by wealthy people and by royalty. The purple cloth here, most likely commentators believe, refers to his outer garment, that his, his robe was in purple. And that then the next statement, that it was fine linen, refers probably to his undergarments, what he wore next to the skin. He not only could afford expensive outer garments that people could see and to show off to others, but he could afford expensive undergarments that he himself would only enjoy. It showed that not only did he have uh, expensive uh, outer clothes, but he had extravagant underwear as well, and therefore he was abundantly rich is the point. But this spending on himself did not stop with his clothes. It continued on to his table. It says he feasted sumptuously. This word for feasted can mean celebrated, and so thus you'll see other translations talking about the joy or the celebration that is found. It describes the fact that he would show off when it came to parties. There was nothing that he would hold back. He would, he would bring it all out for these when he would fill his table. He lived and he celebrated with great ostentation. He lived and rejoiced luxuriously, and he wanted everyone to see it. And so we get the picture of this unnamed wealthy man who lived in comfort and ease. There was no desire of his that was not fulfilled. There was no want that he had that was ever denied. If he wanted it, he could get it, and he enjoyed it. But then in verse 20, we're, we're introduced to another man. Look at it with me. It says, at his gate, that's the rich man's gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. We're told his name is Lazarus. He's a poor man. The name Lazarus, you could say, why is he named? Why is he even named at all? And why is his name Lazarus? Now, let me just say, this is not referring to uh, any other Lazaruses that are mentioned in the Bible. This is a man exclusive to this story in this parable. It comes from the variation of an Old Testament name of Eliezer, which means, the name means dependent on God. Therefore, in the very naming of this man, Lazarus, Jesus is communicating this man was so poor, he had no one that he could depend on, no one that could help him. He was exclusively dependent on the Lord. Everyone else had abandoned him. He's identified as a poor man, which means that he had no means by which to sustain his life. He was indeed in the lowest class of society, forced to beg for his existence. I, would, I believe that he was probably crippled at some level, even though the text doesn't explicitly say that. Uh, he's at some level disabled and not able to, to walk himself. Notice that he was laid at the gate of the rich man. He didn't walk there. He didn't place himself there. He was laid there. He could have been laid there every day. He could have been laid there once and just lived there. In addition to this, I want you to note that he was laid at the gate of the rich man. The word for gate here is used exclusively of palaces, of mansions, and of cities. This was a big, extravagant gate. This was not just a little garden gate that went into a little courtyard or something. This was a huge gate. This, it gives the, the picture that this rich man lived in a mansion. Again, talking about his wealth. But in addition to possibly being crippled or at least not able to move himself, this man, Lazarus, is covered with sores, you'll notice. These are open lesions or abscesses that he has all over his body. In verse 21, 
Notice it says that the, the dogs came and licked those sores. These were not household dogs. Ancients did not keep dogs as pets as we do. These were wild dogs, maybe similar to the wild coyotes that we see around here, picking up trash and were considered unclean. And so as these dogs came and licked upon this man, he was seen as even, even more so ceremonially unclean. These dogs only added to his misery. If he doesn't have the strength to get up and do much of anything, he probably can't swat away these dogs and probably consigned to the fact that they would just come and do their thing. He was utterly alone. He was destitute. And his grave situation is further demonstrated by his hunger. Notice what his desire is in verse 21. He desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. He is not even asking for a piece of the meal. He's asking for the leftovers. He's asking for the crumbs, the things that the dogs typically would pick up. He's saying, could you sweep that off the floor and at least bring that to me so I can have some sort of food? The text doesn't say that he received a scrap of it. I think the, in, the implication is that the rich man did not give anything to this poor man. He desired to have it. That desire was never met. And so as each day went by, he received no food and his strength evaporated. And so the picture Jesus is painting here, let's see this. We have this great mansion, this huge house full of uh, riches that are just showing off to the world and all around. And yet, if you're careful not to miss, as you go into that huge mansion as you're wowed, there's a man off to the side whose, whose life is ebbing away from him, who's simply asking that he could be fed, that he could have something from this man's table. And so with the contrast could not be greater. Believe we're supposed to see that this man, this rich man, is unmoved. He's unconcerned for the man wasting away at his doorstep. In fact, he may have been annoyed by Lazarus, that the sight of him at his gate made the gate uncomely. This rich man seemed to be in full joy as he feasted, only concerned for himself. His riches that he had made him say to himself, similar to the rich fool in, in Luke chapter 12, soul... You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You got it covered. You got everything you need. You're good to go. And so the rich man, from the world's perspective, had reached the pinnacle of human happiness. No desire denied him. He had everything money could buy. Lazarus, on the other hand, had absolutely nothing. He was completely destitute. He was unable to move himself or provide for himself. He was bankrupt of money, of relationships, and of hope. He had hit rock bottom, as the world defines it. And so the distance between the social and economic status of the two could not have been farther apart. But that all changes in verse 22. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And so in life, we have the, the distance between the two men. Now, verse 22, both men die. We don't know if they died simultaneously. We don't know if there's a time gap between the two, but the point is that they both died. And friends, this is a reminder that death is the end of every person. There is no one that can escape death. Whether you have great riches or you have none, death comes to every person. Unless the Lord returns to first rapture us, each of us has an appointment with the grave. And this is a truth that every single human being must reckon with. But notice that once the grave comes, once death comes, that's not the end. Life doesn't cease to exist. There's people today that would just think that, that once death comes, we're annihilated and we just poof, we disappear. There's no more memory of us. We no longer exist. But the Bible doesn't teach that truth, friends. There is what is called an afterlife. There is life beyond the grave. We continue to exist even if the condition that we have is different. And so Jesus simply says that the poor man first 
died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom as some translations have it. Angels, we know through the Bible, are God's messengers. They do his bidding. And so if they're carrying Lazarus, then it means that they, as God's messengers, are going to retrieve God's man, bringing him to Abraham's side, bringing him to heaven. God wanted special care taken with his servant, Lazarus. Abraham, you'll remember, was the original patriarch of Israel. He was set aside from all the nations of the earth, Genesis chapter 12. And so he was chosen that through his, from his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so to speak of Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom or Abraham's uh, embrace refers in a rather Jewish way to speak about the place of the righteous, the place where the righteous go. And so there... They would go and enjoyed close fellowship with the great and righteous man, Abraham. And so Abraham, or Lazarus rather, went to the place where the righteous go after they die. We know from other parts of Scripture we call heaven. But we must make one point here, and that is that this Lazarus did not go to heaven simply because he was poor. This is not to say that all those who have... Uh, who are financially poor are instantly get a ticket to heaven. We have to conclude from this passage as well as from other parts of Scripture that this man was a righteous man as well, that he, in his destitution, in his poverty, that he trusted in the Lord, that he believed, as his name uh, states, that he was dependent upon the Lord. As always, faith is what saves, not certain circumstances or certain deeds. The rich man, we're told, also dies. He died and was buried. The buried is a unique detail to the rich man's uh, account. He was buried, and then he finds himself, verse 23, in Hades. In Hades. Hades is a place that translates the Old Testament word Sheol or Sheol, and it refers to the place of the dead, as we then and, and it could refer in the Old Testament to both the place of the dead for the righteous and the unrighteous. As we come to the New Testament, it's used exclusively of the place of the unrighteous. This is the place where the wicked will suffer for their sins. And that's exactly what we see here. Verse 23, and in Hades, notice, being in torment. Being in torment. He's in torment in great pain. I believe this torment is both physical, he feels the pain through his nerves, and it's also psychological. There's great weights and burdens and regrets that sit upon his mind and his heart, and he's in anguish. His, he suddenly wakes up in this place of anguish. He's died, he's buried, and then he wakes up and he's instantly, the pain comes flashing in. The anguish and the torment and he's seeking to get his bearings. And it says, verse 23, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He, he looks around him and he, and he happens to see Abraham and Lazarus. He can see that Lazarus is in a place of blessing, in a place that's opposite of his. And the indication is that it's, again, it says it's far off. The distance between them is great. And so I believe that in the first part of this, the warning that Jesus gives here is to give his audience in the first century and to give us today the warning that, that earthly joys are temporary. They do not last. There will come a time in which those will come to an end. And we must reckon with how we have lived. You'll remember that the Pharisees are one of the primary audiences of this parable. He has just spoken to them and of them in the verses just previous. And the Pharisees believed that their riches, it says in verse uh, 14 that they were lovers of money, they loved their riches and they believed that their riches were a sign of God's prosperity to them, God's blessing upon them. See, God loves us. We are in God's blessing because look at all the money that we have. And a man like Lazarus, well, <laughs> He must have done something really awful in his life because he's clearly receiving the judgment of God. That's how they viewed the poverty of the, the people right around them. 
And so as they heard this story, they would have been shocked. They would have been shocked to hear that the rich man went to hell and the poor man went to heaven. Because they thought the riches indicated something else. But Jesus directly confronts their thinking in this parable. He wasn't attacking people for simply having money, but he was making clear that those who love money and those who serve money in an idolatrous sort of way will ultimately be cast into hell for the rejection of the Lord God. He's pointing to the fact that behind the love of money, behind the way using money to serve oneself shows an idolatry that is ultimately damning. Jesus said in verse 13 that no one can serve two masters. You can't say to love God and serve God and also love and serve money. You either love and to be devoted to money or to God. It can't be both. This rich man loved himself and loved his money. Money was his God. He used it not to make friends who would ultimately welcome him into eternal dwellings, as verse 9 says, but he used it to serve himself and to serve his own desires. And this rich man found out that to devote one's life to such a God, lowercase g, is to ultimately be disappointed. To see that the joy and the pleasure that comes from simply pursuing pleasure upon this earth ultimately leaves you empty. And not only just empty, but it sends you into a place of pain, agony, torment, and anguish. You see, it all comes to an end. Every person who has ever made money their God has found this to be true. It all comes crashing down at some point. It may not be money for you. It may be some other earthly joy, some other pleasure upon this earth that you're seeking to pursue with all of your might. There are thousands of different idols that we can serve and seek to find pleasure from by devoting our time, our energy, our money to. And yet all of them will leave us empty and send us on a path of damnation. The issue Jesus is getting at is the issue of our ultimate allegiance. And so these two men experience this great reversal. The lowest becomes the highest, the highest becomes the lowest. And it's while they are there in those states that a dialogue is initiated by the rich man to Abraham that goes to the remainder of this passage. And it's from this dialogue that we'll find the final two parts of Jesus' warning. So the first part of his warning is that earthly joys are temporary. The second uh, part of Jesus' warning is that hellish anguish is eternal. Hellish anguish is eternal. Look at verse 24. The rich man calls out. He says he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. He's, he sees Abraham. Again, how does he recognize Abraham? Does Abraham have a name tag? Uh, we don't know. You know how, how is it that he knows that that's Abraham? Again, I think that plays into the parable part of this story. That it, for the sake of illustration, Jesus is bringing this out. Now, there's also no other indications in Scripture that those in heaven and those in hell will be able to have conversation. This, again, I think is for the sake of the story, sake of the parable, to teach a point. But I don't believe that from this we can draw the fact that, that while we're in heaven one day, we're going to be able to have conversations with people that are in hell and vice versa. He's doing this to help us learn something from the dialogue. And we first hear the rich man ask mercy from Abraham, calling him Father. He calls him father. Why? Because he recognizes that as a Jew, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. He's appealing in one sense to his heritage. Listen, I'm on the right side, Father Abraham. Can't you help me? I'm a Jew just like you are. I was born and bred. I'm of the right heritage. I should be able to receive your mercy. But notice that his spiritual heritage doesn't help him in this moment. He asks for mercy, and, and what does he specifically ask for? Look at a verse 24. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
He wants Lazarus to be his messenger boy. Could you, you know, that guy that you just like brought up there, could you, could you do something? Could you have him do something for me? You know, I need to be served. And I'm just wondering if you could, you know, send him. He's my lackey. And I just wondered if you could kind of send him over to go do that and bring that to me. It'd really help me out. But notice that this, what this man is confessing, they're in hell. What, what does he recognize as his experience? He's confessing that he is in anguish in the flame. Hell is a place of great pain and fire. And, and this fire, this flame is used to describe the means of that pain. We all know what it means to be burned. We all know just a, a small touch of flame, a small touch of something hot, and we know the pain that brings. Hell is also said to be a place of darkness. How do you get darkness and flame? We don't know. But I think it goes, what it's showing is the torment and the, the thought that you cannot see anything. There is great blackness, and yet there is also great pain, the feeling, the sensation of being burned. The rich man sees Lazarus as his servant, as I said, wants to be his messenger boy. It's interesting, though, he knows Lazarus' name. That man that sat at his gate day after day, and he acted like he ignored him, he knew who he was. He knew his name, and he hardened his heart against him day after day. And the rich man's request isn't that bad, right? It's just a, it's a small request for a little bit of relief. Can, can I get, just get the tip of his finger into a little bit of water and dip upon my tongue, which that kind of relief would be temporary relief anyway. But it's too late for mercy. It's too late for any relief. And friends, this is a truth we cannot miss. That there will come a day... For those who have rejected the Lord, it will be too late. There is great mercy that is offered now, mercy that is available, mercy wide and free that is not restricted. But there is a day in which that door for mercy will close and mercy will no longer be available. It's available to all who come to Christ by faith now. But after death, the door to mercy is closed, shut and there are no second chances then. And so what are the consequences of refusing to trust in Christ and receive his mercy now? It's torment forever. Some say, oh, I, I can't wait to go to hell because that's where all my friends are going. And I'm gonna have, we're going to have a great party, all of us bad people. <laughs> friends, don't be duped by such cavalier joking. It is instantaneous, eternal torment. In verse 25, uh, Abraham responds to this request and responds to the rich man by making it clear that his fate is sealed and there's nothing that can be done about it. Look at it, verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Notice first Abraham's kind word to this man. He calls him child. He's, even though he's from, speaking from heaven to a man in hell, there is not even condemnation in his words. There's almost a gentleness, a term of endearment, child. Abraham's not being sadistic. Ha, you burn, you fool. No, he says, child, do you remember? Do you remember what it, you did in your life and what Lazarus' life was like? In other words, Abraham here tells the rich man that he is reaping what he sowed. He had received all the good things in his life and he did not consider the poor man in his midst. However, and moreover, he did not care about God. He didn't care about God's word. He didn't care about obeying God's commandments. Because the Lord had instructed Israel to care for the needy. And he had completely rejected that. Abraham's response here illustrates what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 and 24. 
where he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In this life, the rich who are without God and who reject Christ receive all that they can receive. They can only soak up everything that this world has to offer because there is nothing awaiting for them. In fact, what is awaiting them is not the kingdom of God, but instead, as we see in this story here, is anguish and wrath. Lazarus' joy and his, Lazarus's gratification was delayed. He didn't receive the best the world has to offer. He, had, he received the best that heaven had to offer. He had to endure a lifetime of pain but now he enjoys everlasting joy. The rich man, on the other hand, pursued an indulgent life of physical pleasure, and now he experiences unceasing anguish. As we noted, it's both a physical and a psychological pain. Just think of all the the difficulties and pains and sufferings that we experience in this life. Rabid thirst, aching hunger, fear and dread, Guilt and shame. All these things that would sit, that sits upon the hearts of those who are in anguish in hell, who have refused to humble their hearts in this life. But Abraham goes on to emphasize the finality of these positions, and particularly the finality of the rich man's torment, that it is eternal. Notice what he says in verse 26. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. A great chasm has been fixed. Who fixed it? God fixed it. It's a divine passive. It doesn't say that God fixed it, but it's a passive. Who, Who would fix such a chasm? Who has set things up this way? God is the one who set things up this way. And there's no crossing between heaven and hell. There's no hope for salvation after death. Because a great chasm has been fixed. And friends, this finality, this great chasm should terrify us. Should terrify us for our own soul's sake. Should terrify us for the souls of those whom we love who are all around us. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. There is no time or ability to change once you've passed through the veil of death. It is final. And suffering for sin will be eternal. There will be no relief, not even a drip upon the tongue. And neither will anyone else receive any relief for their suffering in the next life if they reject Christ as Lord in this one. And so Jesus warns that earthly joys are temporary and that hellish anguish is eternal. There's a great chasm that's been fixed and no one can cross that chasm. It cannot be changed. But let's look finally at the final part of Christ's warning in this passage in which we find a bit of hope as well. The final piece of warning is that eternal salvation is available. Eternal salvation is is available in verses 27 through 31. As we said, it's not available for the rich man, but as we'll see, it's available for those who are still living. The rich man, you'll notice verse 27, responds to Abraham, and he recognizes that, all right, there's nothing I can do to change. There's not, there's, I can't change my position. But surely you can change the position of my family. Certainly there's something you can still do for them. They're, they haven't crossed that great, this great chasm. They haven't walked through the veil of death yet. They, there's still a chance for them. And so he says, verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, that's Lazarus again, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Notice also that this torment is so real that Lazarus, or the rich man realizes that he's got to try to help his family. And here we see this man's, the rich man's heart isn't totally cold. It's not that he has no compassion. It's just that his compassion is extremely limited. He's got compassion for his people, for his family but not for the poor man who may lay at his gates. 
He recognizes there's no hope for him. There's a bit of tragedy here. Okay, I get you. I, I, there's nothing that can happen for me. But once again, he wants Lazarus to go on his mission. Okay, you can't send Lazarus down here. I get it, the great chasm thing, okay. Well, can you at least send him to my family, to my brothers? I got five of them. Can you send him there and have him deliver a warning to them? Now, in a couple verses, it's gonna, he's going to mention a resurrection, and I think is what he does is he heightens his argument. Here in his first request, I don't think he's necessarily asking for, for Lazarus to be resurrected. I think he wants him to go in some sort of vision or apparition sort of way to suddenly show up kind of ghostly-like, uh, maybe like 1 Samuel 28 where uh, 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 Saul, or Samuel rather, appears for Saul in some sort of spiritual way. We at least have him show up and deliver a message. He doesn't want his family to follow in his footsteps. He doesn't want them to experience what he is experiencing. And I believe that this illustrates somewhat of the regret that is found in every person who is in hell. They will recognize that they missed the opportunity. They will recognize that they, uh, there's no longer a chance for them. And that they have a desire for those who are still living, that they wish they could warn their family, that their family might know that there's a way to escape these flames, way to escape this anguish. And avoid this torment. Abraham replies to him in verse 29. Look at it with me. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham says, No. I'm not sending Lazarus to your family. They don't need an apparition of a dead man to warn them of hell because they already have the scriptures. They already have the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets, Abraham says. This refers to the reference to the Old Testament, the scriptures that were available at that time. In the scriptures, they're told how to live. It tells them God's law. It tells them God's will. It tells them specifically how they are to treat the poor and it teaches them how they could be counted righteous. Ironically, they could follow Abraham's example and believe God and it would be counted to them as righteousness as it says in Genesis 15. And so Abraham says... They've got the scriptures. Let them listen. Let them hear them. I love this. Let the scriptures be listened to. It's already been said. I'm not going to repeat it again. It's like the teacher who says, no, I'm not going to explain this assignment to you. I already gave you the syllabus. You can read it there. I don't need to do anything extra. And particularly... Let's realize what's at stake here, friends. This is the reality of life and death. This is the reality of heaven and hell. This is the reality of damnation or salvation. And the rich man in hell is believing that there is something that is needed in order to wake up his brothers so that they might be spiritually jolted awake to be able to see that there is consequences to how they live. And he thinks he knows best that the best way for them to be, uh, realize that is that there would be some dead man that would appear in their midst. And Abraham says, no, they don't need a sensational experience. They need a heart change. They don't need a vision. They need repentance. They don't need a new revelation, a new word from God, a new word from heaven. They have all that they need. And friends, this is the same for us today. We this rich man couldn't deliver a warning to his family, but he can deliver a warning to us today. His words speak from the flames of hell to us today, that there is indeed anguish there for all those who refuse Christ. And how do we know about Christ? How do we know of his way? How do we know we can be right and we can be saved? We know it through the scriptures. Friends, the Bible, with it is ubiquitous. We can find on every platform the most, most printed book of all time. 
We have the word of God for us today. There is hope for salvation that is available to every single sinner who is alive and well today. The hope for salvation is found in the word. We don't need to look anywhere else. People don't need some sort of paranormal experience, some sort of supernatural event other than regeneration. The point that Jesus wants us to get from Abraham's words is that hell can be avoided for everyone who hears his words, and that means for us today, by simply obeying and following the scriptures. God's word is sufficient for salvation. So the rich man hears this word, and he says, okay, okay. Jesus says, let them listen to, to Moses and the prophets. And the rich man goes, Moses and the prophets? No way, man. I had Moses and the prophets, and look where I am. That didn't help me. That wasn't enough for me. And it's not going to be enough for my brothers either. If you want to really convince them to live righteously, my family's going to need something else. They're going to need something more powerful than the Bible. They're going to need something more powerful than, your revela than God's revelation. And so he says, look at verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Think of the audacity of this rich man. He's speaking to the patriarch of Israel, and in the, the course of this parable, he's really acting as the voice of God, Abraham is. He's representing the voice of truth, the voice of, of, of God. And he says to him, no. No, Father Abraham, I disagree with you. Even though I'm down here in hell receiving the wrath of God, even though you're up there in heaven enjoying God's presence, you are wrong. If someone were to be raised from the dead, then they would repent. Here we see this man has no belief in the sufficiency of the scriptures. He believes the Bible is not enough to bring to salvation for warning of the wrath to come. He thinks a sensational experience is what they need. And even though God has chosen his word to be the warning to humanity, this man thinks he knows better than God. And before we condemn him too much, can't we sympathize a little bit with his desire? Can't we realize that in our own desire to see family members, friends, and those whom we love come to faith, that we can tend to think, listen, I've been given them the word of God. They know it, but they're still not awakened. And so we can think that an extra something could really wow them, could really open the gates of their heart, that they could really Submit to Jesus if, if someone showed up from the dead, baby. I think we can relate to this rich, rich man's reasoning at some level. But Abraham finishes with a definitive statement in verse 31. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. With one statement, through the, Jesus, through the voice of Abraham in this story, simultaneously affirms the absolute sufficiency of Scripture and the absolute stubbornness of the will of man. The absolute sufficiency of Scripture and the absolute stubbornness of the will of man. People are so stubborn in their sin that nothing, not even a resurrection, will convince them of truth. Friends, get this. Humanity's problem is not one of evidence. It's not that they do not know enough, that enough has not been presented by God to bring them to salvation. Humanity's problem is one of sin. They do not seek God, they do not want God, they don't want anything to do with him. And so they want to blame their unbelief on God. Hey God, you haven't shown me enough. You haven't shown up more power, powerfully enough in my life. The problem is in each an individual sinner. And let me ask you this, did someone actually rise from the dead? Here it says if someone should rise from the dead. Did somebody rise from the dead? Yes, and hallelujah, it was Jesus Christ, the very one telling the story. And so I believe he's, in one sense, prophetically saying here that even if I should rise from the dead, you Pharisees won't be convinced. They did not believe once Jesus rose from the dead. They continued in their unbelief against the clear evidence, making up stories that the disciples had stolen his body. And so through this statement, Jesus was making clear 
to his audience and to all generations since that the word of God must be believed in order to receive the salvation that Jesus offers. His resurrection only confirmed the testimony of scriptures. Friends, it was Jesus, the only one who can offer true salvation. It was he who took upon this, himself the sin of humanity. It is he who paid for his sin upon the cross. It is he who rose from the dead, triumphantly conquering death for all of time. It is he who alone offers salvation. And I pray that you would believe what the scriptures say today. This is the testimony of God to you. This is hope offered to you. Salvation is available to be saved from the wrath of hell. That's what this whole account is to do, is to warn you that there is an unpleasant, an eternal future of wrath if you do not submit to Jesus today. But know that salvation is offered to you. You can turn to him before it's too late. Don't wait another day. You do not know what tomorrow brings. You do not know what will happen in your life. God has marked the day when you will come face to face with him, when you, your life on this earth will end. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. Do not wait another day. But turn to him today. Trust in Jesus' sacrifice and believe in him. Friends, this is a somber warning that Jesus gives us. There's nothing more important for all that's going on in the news, governments, nations, stock market, everything else, there's nothing more important than where your soul is at and where you will spend eternity. Jesus in another place said, what would it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? We each need to do business with the Lord that we know that we are with him and so I plead with you, don't gain the world and lose your soul. If you have questions about your soul, I encourage you to come down front after the service. I would love to talk to you. Others would love to talk with you how you might know Jesus personally. And you might be confident that were you to die tonight, that you too would end up in heaven. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this word this morning, the powerful word about heaven and hell. Lord, we know that these truths are not popular. It seems harsh, hard to swallow. And yet, we know it's true because your word has said it. And so I ask that you would please work in each one of our hearts that we would solidify in a greater way the truths that are laid out here that there is indeed a reckoning that we all must face upon death. And I pray, Father, that for those here who have been stiff-arming God, rejecting his word, that they would see with awful fear what awaits them if they remain unmoved. And Father, may you turn their hearts toward yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.